Today I'm going to preach on justified deception or lying part two. Lord God, we thank you for this time to be able to come to your house, to be able to heard, hear your word preached. Lord, please help us to be not only hearers, but doers of your word, but help us to be attentive right now. Lord, please just give us what we need, God. Don't allow me to preach any error, God. If there's any error in anything I say, let it just fall to the wayside, but let your word be true. I know that you're here with us. You said that where two or three are gathered together in your name, there I am in the midst of them, God. We know that you're in your church. Lord, we know the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And Lord, we pray now that you would just enlighten our eyes and fill our hearts with your light and truth. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Ezekiel 14.9 says, And if the prophet be deceived when he hath spoken a thing, I, the Lord, have deceived that prophet. And I will stretch out my hand upon him and will destroy him from the midst of my people. James 2 says, Likewise also was not Rahab the harlot justified by works when she had received the messengers and had sent them out another way. Second Kings says, And Elisha said unto them, This is not the way, neither is this the city. Follow me, and I will bring you to the man whom ye seek. But he led them to Samaria. And finally, Exodus 1 says, <coughs> And the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said unto them, Why have you done this thing and have saved the men children alive? And the midwives said unto Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not as the Egyptian women, for they are lively and are delivered ere the midwives come in unto them. Therefore God hath dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and waxed very mighty. In our last sermon on lying, we spoke about avoiding guile. We showed how lying can be much more than just speaking words that are not true. All forms of deceit can be considered lying. The Bible many times uses forms of the word deceive as a stand-in for lying and liars. The Bible is a built-in dictionary where it often substitutes one word for its synonym. The Bible's built-in dictionary shows us that lying is synonymous with deceit. For example, Psalms 109 verse 2 says, For the mouth of the wicked and the mouth of the deceitful are opened against me. They have spoken against me with a lying tongue. But even if the words that we say are technically true, but are ambiguous and are used to deceive, that could still be considered a lie. Even total silence at times could be a lie. If you're a merchant selling wheat, and the customer came to buy a measure of wheat from you, and you pulled out a weight that, that was lighter than it should have been, and you silently weigh out the measure of wheat and thereby cheat your customer out of some of his grain, you'd be a liar. The Bible calls that a deceitful weight. And if you were doing this thing, you'd be a liar, even if you remained entirely silent. We again saw previously that all forms of deceit can be lies. Some people limit a lie to a blatant falsehood told with the intent to deceive. But according to Bible usage, this definition is simply too narrow. We also noticed, noted before that a false witness shall not be unpunished, and he that telleth lies shall not escape. We also saw that the Bible tells us that all liars shall have their part in the lake that burneth with fire and brimstone. This can temporarily affect even a blood-bought believer. So lying is a very, very serious sin in the eyes of God. So the question arises, is it ever right to deceive? 
Or another way of putting it is, is a deception always a lie? To answer this, let's look at some dictionary definitions again in greater detail. We've already seen that for a falsehood or an untruth to be a lie, there must be an intent to deceive, or at least negligence. Simply making a mistake is not generally considered to be a lie. Webster's 1828 says, lie, a criminal falsehood, a falsehood uttered for the purpose of deception, an intentional violation of truth. Fiction or a false statement or misrepresentation not intended to deceive, mislead, or injure, as in fables, parables, and the like, is not a lie. It is willful deceit that makes a lie. A man may act a lie as by pointing his finger in a wrong direction when a traveler inquires of him his road. Notice the definition doesn't just say falsehood, it says criminal falsehood. And look at the definition of lie that Webster gives when it's used as a verb. He says to utter falsehood with an intention to deceive or with an immoral design. Thou hast not lied to men but to God, Acts 5.3. Or to exhibit a false representation, to say or do that which deceives another when he has a right to know the truth or when morality requires a just representation. These definitions show that the primary meaning of the word lie is not just to intentionally deceive. It's to deceive when morality requires a just representation. It is to tell a criminal falsehood. In its very definition, lying denotes a criminal act. And by criminal, it just means that in the broad sense of something being wrong, not something that is strictly wrong according to the standards of a civil government or a law somewhere. Let's see more evidence of this. The Oxford English Dictionary is one of the most useful dictionaries because it provides many examples for the definitions it uses. There are 20 volumes in the edition I have access to, so it's a very big dictionary. Oxford has pages and pages of definitions and examples for lie. Here's the very first one, and the very first one usually is the most important definition. It has three parts in this first one, this first definition. It says 1A, to lie, an act or instance of lying a false statement made with intent to deceive, a criminal falsehood. In modern use, the word is normally a violent expression of moral reprobation, which in polite conversation tends to be avoided, the synonyms falsehood and untruth being often substituted as relatively euphemistic. Notice the phrase criminal falsehood again, and notice how it says to call someone a liar is so bad that euphemisms like falsehood and untruth are often used. Why are these euphemisms used? Why is calling someone a liar so bad that it was once considered fighting words, meaning that there was some justification if a person were to assault you upon receiving such a vile insult? It is because the word lie automatically carries a negative connotation that does not automatically exist in its synonyms like deceive. The second part of the definition references so-called white lies. The very construction of the term white lie shows us that the word lie inherently means something bad. Otherwise, it would not need the adjective white to try to perfume it. And here's the third part of Oxford's definition number one for lie. By transference, something grossly deceptive, an imposture. A couple example sentences it gives are the very formality of an idol is to be a lie, to stand for that which it is not. And how is it possible for man to maintain a constant lie in his appearance? And the first definition then for imposture is the action or practice of imposing upon others willful and fraudulent deception. This shows a lie again is something wrong, something fraudulent, not merely something deceptive. This is why the Bible calls Rahab, for example, a harlot 
but never calls her a liar or says that she lied. This is because her deception was justified, as we'll see. And similar to these definitions, the word lie in the Bible is like the word murder or even steal. It's a word that built into its very meaning, there is an assumption that the deceit is a form of wrongdoing. A lie is like a murder. It's never a good thing. This is why you will never see a verse that commands us to or allows us to lie. But sometimes killing, which in one context would be murder, in another context would be a justified killing. Likewise, deceit, which in one context would be considered a lie, can be in another context an allowable form of deceit. How do we know that deceit is allowable in some cases? How do we know that deceiving someone is akin to killing someone as opposed to something like adultery or sodomy, which is always, in all cases, wrong? First of all, there's the very first verse that we read today that indicates God himself deceives. Look at the verse again. In Ezekiel 14.9, it says, If the prophet be deceived, when he has spoken a thing, I, the Lord, have deceived that prophet, and I will stretch out my hand upon him and will destroy him from the midst of my people. Being deceitful can't possibly be always wrong, or God would not do it. God doesn't commit adultery on his bride and never would, because it would always be wrong. But God will and does deceive. And look at these verses. In 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 11 and 12, you could turn there if you want, but we'll be turning to some other places too. Um, For this cause, God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie, that they all might be damned who believe not the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. God is the one sending delusion. He is in some sense, he in some sense causes them to believe the Antichrist's lie. Notice that God is causing delusion, but he's not lying. He is justly damning them for not believing the truth, and the damnation includes delusion. Second, God has exceptions for other commandments of his. We hopefully already know that God allows killing and self-defense and capital punishment and in a just war. But there are more examples. Consider stealing. The Bible says, thou shalt not steal. Stealing is taking something that does not belong to you. But is it sometimes okay to take something that does not belong to you according to the scriptures? Sure it is. The Bible calls it spoils, the spoils of war. Joshua eleven fourteen says, And all the spoil of these cities and the cattle the children of Israel took for a prey unto themselves. But every man they smote with the edge of the sword until they had destroyed them. Neither left they any to breathe. The children of Israel killed their enemies and took their stuff. What would have been murder and stealing in one context was in this context justified. Another example of taking spoils in Numbers 31, it says, And they brought the captives and the prey and the spoil unto Moses and Eleazar the priest, and unto the congregation of the children of Israel, unto the camp at the plains of Moab, which are by Jordan near Jericho. And look at this command against stealing. Leviticus 19.11 says, Ye shall not steal, neither deal falsely, neither lie one to another. Notice the command not to steal also contains commands against lying. It should not be hard to understand that since there is an exception to this prohibition on taking something that is not yours, there might also be an exception to deceit. Look at another example from the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20 says, in verse 4 and 6, Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image, or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, 
or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them, for I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me, and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. So surely there will be no exception for this commandment, this not bowing down to idols or worshiping them. Well, there's not exactly an exception, but there is an interpretation or a clarification shows that bowing down, not worshiping, but bowing down before an idol is sometimes acceptable. If you want to turn there, starting at 2 Kings 5.14, if you have your Bible, this will be a little more extended reading, so you might want to follow along if you can. Um, it's a passage where Naaman gets healed of leprosy. He was this Syrian captain of the host who there was this, you know, he had leprosy and there was this little maid of Israelite that was captured by them and that was serving him and said, hey, you could go to Elisha and he could heal you. And they went to the river and he got healed. So we'll pick it up in 2 Kings 5, verse 14. It says, then he went down and dipped himself, this is Naaman, seven times in Jordan, according to the saying of the man of God. And his flesh came again like the flesh of a little child and he was clean. And he returned to the man of God, he and all his company, and came and stood before him. And he said, Behold, now I know that there is no God in all the earth, but in Israel. Now, therefore, I pray thee, take a blessing of thy servant. But he said, As the Lord liveth before whom I stand, I will receive none. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. And Naaman said, Shall there not then, I pray thee, be given to thy servant two mules, burden of earth? For thy servant will henceforth offer neither burnt offering nor sacrifice unto other gods, but unto the Lord. In this thing the Lord pardon thy servant, that when my master goeth into the house of Rimon to worship there, and he leaneth on my hand, and I bow myself in the house of Rimon, when I bow down myself in the house of Rimon, the Lord pardon thy servant in this thing. And he said unto him, Go in peace. So Naaman just got healed and evidently just got saved. He apparently wanted to build an altar to the Lord in Syria, and just like water from a Syrian river was not good enough to heal him, he thought maybe he needed earth from Israel to build an altar with. He was choosing to forsake his old gods. But he realized there was an issue with this. His king was apparently feeble and needed help walking and so leaned on the hand of Naaman. His king would worship and bow down to his false god, Rimon, and when he did, Naaman would have to lower himself as well since the king was leaning on his hand. He asked Elisha to pardon him in this matter. The implication he made was that he was helping his master, but not really worshiping the false god himself. Notice that Elisha says, go in peace. Now, some might suggest Elisha wasn't forbidding him in bowing with his master because he was a new convert and couldn't handle that truth yet. But that doesn't make any sense. It's one thing not to bring up every possible edge case to some new believer, but it's entirely another matter to deceive him into thinking an unusual situation is okay and not letting him know that it's wrong when he asks you about it plainly. Elisha answered him the way he did because in this unique case, it was okay for him to bow down. Naaman's tender and newly converted conscience was causing him to examine his behavior. It was so meticulous that after being healed by being in water from Israel, he wanted to raise up an altar back in Syria with dirt from Israel. Now he wanted to make sure he was not bowing down to idols and violating the second commandment when he helped his master. If he would have had to personally bow down, like Daniel's three friends were commanded to, in obedience to the idol, 
he would have had to refuse regardless of consequences. Or if he was accustomed to praying in a way he could openly be seen and would have tried to hide it like Daniel refused to do, that also would have been wrong. But steadying his king's hand as the king was the one that bowed down while having to bow down himself some to accomplish this, that was allowable. That is the whole purpose that we have such a story in the Bible. God chose to put it in there for a reason. These illustrations were put in there for our admonition, for our examples, and for our learning. <coughs> Romans 15.4 says, For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. If there's any doubt about the power of illustrations alone to give us doctrine, let's look at, an, at yet another example of a commandment with exceptions. If you want to, you could turn to Matthew 12. We'll be reading the first 13 verses in Matthew 12. At that time, Jesus went on the Sabbath day through the corn, and his disciples were hungered and began to pluck the ears of corn and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said unto him, Behold, thy disciples do that which is not lawful to do upon the Sabbath day. But he said unto them, Have you not read what David did when he was a hungered, and they, and they that were with him? How he entered into the house of God, and did eat the showbread, which was not lawful for him to eat, neither for them which were with him, but only for the priests. Or have you not read in the law how that on the Sabbath days the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless? But I say unto you, that in this place is one greater than the temple. But if ye had known what this meaneth, I will have mercy and not sacrifice, ye would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath day. And when he was departed thence, he went into their synagogue. And behold, there was a man which had his hand withered. And they asked him, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath days, that they might accuse him? And he said unto them, What man shall there be among you that shall have one sheep, and if it fall into a pit on the Sabbath day, will he not lay hold on it and lift it out? How much then is a man better than a sheep? Wherefore is it lawful to do well on the Sabbath days? Then saith he to the man, Stretch forth thine hand. He stretched it forth, and it was restored whole, like as the other. So notice how Jesus answers and defends this picking of wheat on the Sabbath. There's no exception directly listed in the law anywhere that I'm aware of for Sabbath breaking, like there is for killing. He simply uses the illustration of David to draw the inference and to show that what they're doing is allowable. He then reasons out from that illustration based on other indirect evidence, specifically that the priests themselves are working. It's not a violation of the Sabbath prohibition on working for them. And he makes a common sense application. Who among you would let their beasts die because it was the Sabbath? The fact that this was a ceremonial law versus a moral law is not relevant. Breaking the ceremonial law was punishable by death, at least in this case. Notice in Numbers 15, 32, it says, And while the men of the children of Israel were in the wilderness, they found a man that gathered sticks upon the Sabbath day. And, that, and they that found him gathering sticks brought him unto Moses and Aaron and unto all the congregation. And they put him in ward, because it was not declared what should be done to him. And the Lord said unto Moses, The man shall be surely put to death. All the congregation shall stone him with stones without the camp. And all the congregation brought him without the camp and stoned him with stones, and he died as the Lord commanded Moses. So, the illustration of David and the showbread, along with reasoning from the Bible regarding the priests working on the Sabbath and biblical principle of the Sabbath being made for man, and the common sense idea that they would save their beasts, 
showed that there were exceptions to the prohibition of working on the Sabbath, even though no exceptions are directly mentioned in the Old Testament. A similar process of reasoning from the scriptures will show that deception, which is called lying in other contexts, in some cases is allowable. We'll see that deception is allowable for the same exceptions that killing is, that is, in a just war or in self-defense. The first illustration is the example of Rahab. And if you want, you could turn here too, since we're going to read the first 16 verses of Joshua chapter 2. So I know it's a lot of verses to read all at once, but just try to follow along because this whole story is important for this point. So oh, the story of Rahab, starting at Joshua chapter 2, verse 1. And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent out of Shittim two men to spy secretly, saying, Go view the land, even Jericho. And they went and came into a harlot's house named Rahab and lodged there. And it was told the king of Jericho, saying, Behold, there came men in hither tonight of the children of Israel to search out the country. And the king of Jericho sent unto Rahab, saying, Bring forth the men that are come to thee, which are entered into thine house, for they become to search out all the country. And the woman took the two men and hid them, and said thus, There came men unto me, but I wist not whence they were. And it came to pass about the time of shutting of the gate, when it was dark, that the men went out. Whither the men went, I wot not. Pursue after them quickly, for ye shall overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof of the house and hid them with the stalks of flax, which she had laid in order upon the roof. <clears throat> and the men pursued after them the way to Jordan unto the fords. And as soon as they which pursued after them were gone out, they shut the gate. And before they were laid down, she came up to them upon the roof. And she said unto the men, I know that the Lord have given you the land and that your terror has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land faint because of you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did unto the two kings of the Amorites that were on the other side Jordan, Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. And as soon as we heard these things, our hearts did melt. Neither did there remain any more courage in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and in earth beneath. Now therefore I pray you, swear unto me by the Lord, since I have showed you kindness, that you will also show kindness unto my father's house, and give me a true token, and that you will save alive my father, and my mother, and my brethren, and my sisters, and all that they have, and deliver our lives from death. And the men answered her, Our lives, our life for yours, if you utter not this our business. And it shall be when the Lord hath given us the land, that we will deal kindly and truly with thee. Then she let them down by a cord through the window, for her house was upon the town wall, and she dwelt upon the wall. And she said unto them, Get ye to the mountain, lest the pursuers meet you, and hide yourself there three days, until the pursuers be returned, and afterward may ye go your way. Notice that Rahab received the spies. She then plainly spoke a falsehood, telling the men looking for the Hebrew spies that they could catch them if they went a certain way. She then sent the spies out a different way so they would not be caught. This was deception, plain and simple. And if it was not justified, it would be a lie, and Rahab would be a liar. But look at what the Bible says about this incident in James chapter 2, verse 25. It says, Likewise, also was not Rahab the harlot justified by works, when she had received the messengers and had sent them out 
another way. Rahab was, was justified when she received the messengers of God and sent them out another way. Some might say this doesn't commend her lie. They are right in one sense. It does not commend her lie because her deception was not a lie. It was a ruse, a stratagem of war. It was a justified deception. Notice that he commends in James not just her receiving the messengers, but her sending them out another way. She could not have sent them out another way if she had not already first sent the men looking for them out by a false way. Rahab's falsehood was instrumental to that which she was commended for. The verse in Joshua 6 agrees with this. 6.17 in Joshua says, And the city shall be accursed, even it and all that are therein, to the Lord. Only Rahab the harlot shall live, she and all that are with her in the house, because she hid the messengers that we sent. She lived because she hid the spies. Her deceptive words were an essential part of that hiding for which she was rewarded. Why was this falsehood an acceptable stratagem rather than a damnable lie? Because God had marked these people for destruction. They were all about to be killed, justly in a righteous, God-ordained war. Had Rahab led the men into her house, planning to have the spies ambush and kill the men, that would have been justified. We see ambushes and deception in war occurring other times in the Bible, like when the men of Ai were lured out by Joshua to their destruction. The destruction was righteous. So those that can be killed justly in war can also be deceived. If Rahab could have led them to an ambush and had them killed, which she could have, then surely she could have effectuated a deception on them that did not involve them losing their life immediately. And whether she told them an outright falsehood or played word games with nebulous language would not matter. The deception was either justified and righteous or not justified and she was a liar. Rahab was clearly not a liar, but was instead commended for her dealing with the spies of which her stratagem was an integral part. The second illustration we'll look at to show that deception is sometimes allowable is the example of the midwives. There's another place you might want to turn. It's in Exodus chapter 1, starting in verse 15. Um, the Hebrews were in captivity at this time, as you know, and we're going to pick up where the midwives are being spoken to by Pharaoh. It says, The king of Egypt spake to the Hebrew midwives, of which the name of the one was Shiprah, and the name of the other, Puah. And he said, When you do the office of a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them upon the stools, if it be a son, then ye shall kill him. But if it be a daughter, then, shall, then she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not, as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the men children alive. And the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said unto them, why have you done this thing and have saved the men children alive? And the midwives said unto Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not as the Egyptian women, for they are lively and are delivered ere the midwives come in unto them. Therefore God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and waxed very mighty. And it came to pass, because the midwives feared God, that he made them houses. And Pharaoh charged all his people, saying, Every son that is born ye shall cast into the river, and every daughter ye shall save alive. The Hebrew midwives were ordered to kill all the Hebrew newborn sons. Instead of killing them, they saved them alive. This they did, the Bible says, because they feared God. 
The Bible says we ought to obey God rather than man when man's commands go against God's. In Acts 5, it says, Then Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. When Pharaoh asked them why they did this, that is, save those men children alive, they could have said, We ought to obey God rather than man. But instead, they deceived Pharaoh. Why did they do this? Many commentators say it was good of them to save the babies, but they were wrong for supposedly lying and were still commended even though they were not quite martyr material. One former pastor says they lied to save themselves. With his doctrine, they could have used subterfuge if they worded their answer more precisely, perhaps by having a lawyer help them with their response first, but as it is worded, they are liars. But what does the Bible say? Read these two verses again. And the midwives said unto Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not as the Egyptian women, for they are lively and are delivered ere the midwives come in unto them. Therefore, God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and waxed very mighty. In verse 19 was the deception. The Hebrew women were very, likely very lively. The Bible says the Israelites waxed exceedingly mighty. Some of them did likely give birth before a midwife got there. But we know that statement was not entirely true, because the narrator, the Holy Spirit, had said that the midwives saved the men children alive. That means at least in some cases, the midwives were there when the babies were born. Otherwise, they wouldn't have been able to save them if they were already just born and gone before they got there. Again, they could have worded it differently. A lawyer perhaps could have worded it in such that what they said was technically still true somehow. But that's not the essence of whether they lied. The real question is, would they have been deceitful? The answer is definitely, no matter how they worded it. So it only leaves one last question. Was the deception justified? And the answer is yes, it was justified. These midwives were not weak, fearful of being martyrs. They were bold, risking their lives in defiance of Pharaoh. The midwives deceived Pharaoh so that babies could continue to be saved. Right after that so-called lie in verse 19, the Bible says, Therefore, God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and waxed very mighty. The therefore occurs right after the deception. It is referring to the deception as well as the initial saving of the babies. This is clear by the rest of the verse, where it says the people multiplied and waxed very mighty. Had the midwives chose the so-called more noble path of martyrdom, Pharaoh would have replaced the midwives with midwives that would have executed the babies and the people would not have been multiplying and waxing mighty. Their deception saved many more babies. One could try to make the argument that God would have saved them another way. That is true, he probably would have, and he certainly could have. And in another time and place, had Joshua yelled out, Thou shalt not kill, I cannot kill according to the word of God, and laid down his sword instead of destroying the inhabitants of Jericho, God would probably have destroyed it some other way. But that has no bearing on the fact that he was right to kill those in Jericho, and he was right to save the harlot that hid the spies. Additionally, Joshua was right to deceive the men of Ai with his ruse, wherein he got them to chase him before they were ambushed and destroyed. Notice that these examples of Joshua and Rahab and the midwives were not examples of doing wrong so some greater good can be achieved. That's a false premise, a straw man argument. They are rather examples of Rightful use of deception in a circumstance where killing would be allowed, and thus so would deception. So the midwives were not liars. 
their justified deception saved many lives, and the deception of these heroic midwives directly allowed Moses to be born and live three months, and thus be found by Pharaoh's daughter and ultimately lead Israel out of captivity. Had the midwives not engaged in deception, for which they were praised and rewarded, they would have been murdered and Moses would have been killed by some wicked midwife that was willing to go against God and comply with the order of her earthly authority. The midwives were justified in their deception because it was self-defense. If the midwives had the power, they could have physically defended the babies. And if it resulted in the death of Pharaoh or his men, it would have been justified. Since death would have been justified, a stratagem or ruse to accomplish the same ends is also justified. Please remember also, these midwives are not simply characters in a story. They were real people. They have names, Shipra and Pua. To call them liars is to slander these godly midwives. In Proverbs 10, it says, He that hideth hatred with lying lips, and he that othereth a slander is a fool. These godly midwives rightfully deceived Pharaoh to save life when there was a right to kill. It is not the exact form of the deception, ambiguous wording, lying by omission, etc., that makes the difference. If the deception was not justified, no matter of deception would be righteous. But thankfully, these midwives did have a righteous cause for their deception. These illustrations that we looked at today were not illustrations of liars. Deception in war is common throughout the scriptures. J.L. took in Sisera through false pretenses. She made him think he was safe and hammered his head to the ground. She was celebrated in the Song of Deborah and Barak, and Deborah prophesied that he would be delivered into her hand. We are not to interpret this as somehow being a wrong song and a prophecy of something that was bad. This was a good and righteous thing she did. She served him butter in a lordly dish, the Bible said. She was praised, and rightfully so. It doesn't matter if the deception is blatant and direct, like with Rahab, or if it's more indirect. The justification of a deception is based on the circumstances, just like killing, and just like taking possessions that don't belong to you. This has a very practical application in our day and age. We need to all understand this doctrine and be able to trust each other that we understand this. If my kids were at someone's house and some Nazi or communist powers were to arise in our land and come and wanted to take them away for a, a forced transgender mutilation or something, we all need to know that we'd be willing to tell an untruth to deceive the authorities and tell them these kids aren't here right now. We would have a right to kill them, to stop them from taking them, wouldn't we? And so we would have a right to deceive them to stop them from taking them. We all have to know that we would do this if necessary. We all have to know that we can trust each other. If I could say, yes, the kids are in there, go get them. And as the evil agents went to take the children, if I could hit them in the head from behind and deliver the children, if I could say that they are in there, and then when they open the door, the children themselves could open fire and defend themselves, if those scenarios are virtuous and proper, then only a stubborn and foolish misreading of the scriptures could think in such a case that telling a falsehood by telling the authority that children were not there would somehow be a sin. We don't need to have some righteous over much, foolish idea about so-called lying that we have to sit there and just remain utterly silent as they come take our children away or come up with some lying word game and that if we can't quickly come up with some deceptive prevarication or equivocation or dissimulation, that we just have to accept the loss of our children or be in sin. 
God forbid. We need to understand that Rahab's deception, Shipra and Pua's deceptions were godly and commended, and we'll do well to emulate them as our examples if, God forbid, we ever need to. Our example should come from the Bible, not uninspired history. We read about Elisha at the beginning of this sermon. It said, 2 Kings 6, 19, And Elisha said unto them, This is not the way, neither is this the city. Follow me, and I'll bring you to the man whom ye seek. But he led them to Samaria. Lord willing, next time, if there is a next time, if the Lord doesn't come back beforehand, or if we have another time to preach, we'll look at the example of Elisha in detail and how and why he deceived the soldiers that were coming after him. And we'll show how a wrong view of lying, in particular the righteous over much view, that thinks Rahab and the midwives were wicked liars instead of justified deceivers, how that false lying doctrine leads to and tempts one to become a liar himself. And we also answer some objections to this view. But in closing, please remember this. We are to live our lives without guile. The circumstances in which deceit is allowable are very few. May we never have to kill anyone, and may we never have to engage in any kind of deception whatsoever. All liars and murderers will go to hell unless they repent. Let us not be among their number. Let us rather be like Rahab and the midwives, godly women who were rewarded and commended, in part for their righteous and necessary deceptions. Lord God, we thank you that we had this time to be able to study your word. Lord, I pray that we would receive this, God, that we'd understand it, God, that you would just give us greater understanding of your word. And I do pray that we don't have to engage in these kind of deceptions, nor do we ever have to kill anybody. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.